Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. So guys, what's going on this week? Well, a lot of things, as is, uh, tr- uh, you know, there's always too much going on these past few years, but the there's some good news this week um, in a story that we talked about in February Um, But the U.S. women's national soccer team has a new collective bargaining agreement and they're officially, finally, on equal footing with the men. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember us talking about that. Um, And when we talked before, they were waiting, you know, they'd reached a deal, but it all had to be sort of codified in a CBA. So exactly. It's nice to have that officially ticked off the list. Yeah. and, and, and there was an active lawsuit as well within the sort of dispute here. So like how do, like how was that all shaking out? Yeah. So when we last talked about this back in February, we talked to um, an attorney representing the team in that litigation, and they had just reached a $24 million deal with uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation. But so now under these labor agreements, it's all all official and basically, the men and women's teams will share FIFA World Cup prize money. They'll also get equal appearance fees, game bonuses, and shares of, of commercial revenue. So, a lot of great stuff. Really good news for equal pay for women there. Um, so, you know, head over to our website to read more about that if you want the details of the, the collective bargaining agreement. Um, we also, in the show today, have... A really interesting talk with uh, one of our Florida reporters, Carolina Bellato. She, for the past year, has been covering the fallout from the um, condominium collapse in Surfside, Florida, and all the litigation that spun out of that. So we talked to Carolina this week because there's a nearly $1 billion settlement to resolve many of the claims in those cases. Um, so we have her break it all down for us. Yeah, that the settlement is just massive and the time frame is crazy. So definitely stick around for that. But first I want to talk about baby formula. You know, it's on everyone's mind. So hot right now. It's, I mean, it's, I'm so gl- I'm yeah. actually so glad we're bringing this up because I have seen the stray headline, you know, a few news stories about the shortage, but I really don't know exactly what machinations are going into why this is happening and how the law is involved. So happy yeah. you're bringing it to us, Haley. It is. It's a pretty, there's a lot of legal stuff going on here that we we can break down. But so as you may recall, um, Abbott's plant has been closed while regulators look into potential safety concerns, most yeah. notably a possible link between Abbott's formula and a bacterial infection that made some babies really, really sick. Um, a couple of them died. Um, so the, the big news here is Abbott has reached this deal with the FDA to get things get things going again. Yeah, and I mean, I, anybody who's read a newspaper in the last 10 days knows that the infant formula shortage is a huge story right now. Um, and the Abbott closure is one part of this. It's even probably, it's, it, it's the primary driver of this, and we'll get yeah. to some other factors later. But the sort of like legal and regulatory issues around Abbott are pretty interesting. So they have received permission to reopen now, but what exactly led them to shutting down? Like, how did this all begin? Yeah. So earlier this year, um, there were about, I believe there were four babies that, that got sick, um, 
Two of them died, as I mentioned. Um, and all of them had consumed Abbott's Similac PM 6040 formula. And so after that happened, the FDA launched its investigation and Abbott voluntarily recalled the formula. And then chaos reigned. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you did say that the big news here is that the plant's reopening. So for Abbott, do they feel vindicated that this proves that they didn't do anything wrong with this formula? Um, how, are, yeah. how are they responding to this? Yeah, so that's essentially what Abbott is saying. They're They're like, well, the FDA didn't find any conclusive link. So, you know, all is well. Um, but the FDA says it's a little more complicated than that. I was on a press call with FDA officials on Monday, and it, it's very complex. We don't need to dive too much into it here, but they basically said they don't have enough information or testing to conclusively say that. But what they can say is there are a bunch of steps that Abbott can take um, and is already in the process of taking to safely reopen and mitigate the risk of, of anything like this happening again. So all of these steps that, um, that Abbott needs to take, those are laid out in a consent decree filed in Michigan federal court. Okay. Well, let's talk about like the kind of legal instruments at play here. I mean, the, the Abbott closure is at the center of this whole formula shortage. And now there's this consent decree that I guess is going to sort of somewhat remediate the thing. What is in this consent decree? Yeah, so it's it still needs court approval. That's important to point out. But um, it's an agreement between Abbott and the FDA designed to bring the facility into compliance with a couple of key laws and regulations. Uh, one of those is the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And then the other is the FDA's good manufacturing practice requirements. Um, and obviously, this goes without saying, but the goal here is Abbott needs to improve the way that it handles the risk of bacterial contaminations, like, like what may have occurred with, with the infant formula. So per the decree, Abbott's got to ramp up those, those safety procedures, um, revitalize its training and education, Right. Um, and and then the FDA will get in there, make sure it's in line with what it wants, and then the plant can start back up. I mean, that all sounds pretty good. I I suspect this is not quite so easy, though. Um, I've had a lot of Facebook friends posting like, hey, friends in a different city, can you look for this kind of formula I need? Because store shelves are still bare in a lot of places. How quickly is this going to fix things? Not as quickly as as we want. The FDA does say their inspectors are, quote, ready and waiting to get back into the facility and sign off on everything. Um, but even when it does, Abbott will need two weeks to get everything uh, fully running. And then it'll be another six to eight weeks before products hit shelves. Yeah, this is where, I mean, we've We've learned so much about the supply chain uh, in light of the pandemic. And this is yet another issue where it's like, you think manufacturing is so fast, but there's so many steps. It's not just like turning a switch on and off. So many, so many. And this kind of uh, veers a bit into Alex's territory here. But but while we're waiting... We can play jazz on this a little bit. Go <laughs> ahead. I know there's like a lot of... The FDA plays a plays a crucial role in this. So like, tell us about that. 
And yeah. I can, yeah. While we're waiting on, on products to get back to shelves from Abbott, um, the FDA has relaxed its formula import rules so we can get more formula in here from manufacturers abroad. And um, typically how it works, which I did not know this, obviously, before this this ordeal unfolded, but... You mean you weren't, like, extensively <laughs> versed in, like, baby formula import guidelines? <laughs> Haley, Alex, where so are you disappointed, doing? Haley. I, I'm Come on. sorry. I know. I, no, no, I don't no. know what no, I've been doing. No, but actually, this is very telling about the Byzantine sort of infrastructure of trade rules for this. But, yeah, go ahead. It's wild, honestly, to me. Um, so normally, 98% of infant formula that's consumed by babies in the U.S. is made in the U.S. That is not going well for us right now. <laughs> um, and so the FDA is just making it a little easier for foreign manufacturers to get product in here. But Alex, I'd love to hear your take on this. Um, I thought it was really interesting that the reason there were more stringent import rules was not that the FDA was concerned about the safety of infant formula abroad. It was just they didn't like how it was labeled. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's not even about them like not liking it. I mean, it was just but yes, I mean, this is an example of a time where when you dive deep into the bureaucracy of federal import rules, you could pick out any line of them and it might never matter ever. Except a time where um, a huge producer of a crucial domestic product shuts down and then, you know, imports uh, can't come in. But what, what you're hinting at, Haley, is that the FDA did and has, and has detained a lot of European baby formula just because it kind of like didn't uh, hew to labeling guidelines. Nothing to do with like chemical testing, nothing like that. Now, cynical industry folks would tell you that that was just sort of like a disguised way to safeguard U.S. production, right? Like the sure. idea of like, we have like a group of a few U.S. producers and this is a way to kind of edge out some of their producers, uh, uh, some of their foreign competition. I mean, the other kind of like, if I can trade law with a law for a second here. Um, Please do. I've missed it. <laughs> Amber. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's been a while. So there were other, there were rules introduced in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. This is the update to the NAFTA agreement. This happened at the end of 2019 that, um, again, like nobody would pay attention to this had this not happened that kind of like put a lot of restrictions on the amount of formula and other dairy products that we could buy from Canada. So that's sort of like shut off in the USMCA. Infant formula is also generally very highly protected, not only by tariffs, but by tariff rate quotas, which are a little more invisible. That's like a thing where it's basically an import cap where like you can import a certain limit duty-free, and then after you exceed that limit, you get imposed to a high tariff. So it's an example of like hyper, and and a lot of this stuff has come out in these, in these few weeks, um, of like hyper-specific lobbying for protection for certain um, industries, all of which is aimed at protecting domestic production, 
but that all kind of all of the cards fall out of the castle if a huge producer gets shut down, which is what we're talking yeah. about right. now. And now they are getting back on their feet, but I know it will take a, um, delay. a little bit longer time. So in the meantime, what else is going on here, Haley? I know the government is taking other steps as well. Yeah, so President Biden on Wednesday invoked the Defense Production Act um, and ordered suppliers to direct needed resources and ingredients to infant formula manufacturers before they can sell to other customers. Um, And Biden has also directed the uh, Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Agriculture to use DOD aircraft to pick up infant formula from overseas And then lawmakers have also introduced a bill, uh, and that bill would provide $28 million in emergency funding to the FDA to help it address the shortage. And specifically what the FDA would do with that added funding is hire more inspectors, and then it could also um, ramp up its uh, efforts to ensure that there aren't fraudulent products being sold, which of course is a concerned when we have a massive shortage like this. Mm. So a lot of moving parts. Um, definitely hope on the horizon. We'll, we'll have to keep watching. It's a super interesting story with so many interesting components to it. Um, next, I did want to shift us to a little bit of intrigue we have over in foggy London town this week. <laughs> Alex, I'm going to stop you right here and say, (laughs) you said the term foggy London town, but not in an English accent. I'm so disappointed in you. I also was wondering. Sorry, go ahead. Who's the actor on this show? I'm just saying. Yeah. You know, we'll take you to foggy London town. (laughs) Yes. Thank Thank you. Terrible. Okay, now you can proceed. No, do the whole thing. I got caught between like upper gentry and like cockney. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Our colleagues in our UK bureau are so disappointed right now. I'm sorry to put you on the spot. That's kind of why I didn't want to do it. I know. It's my fault. It's my fault. Okay. Okay. So. There is a really interesting case um, that got handed down over there this week where an English court has basically issued a rebuke to a former Deckert lawyer who uh, the court found leaked damning information to the government and to the press about this mining company's alleged corrupt activities, corruption and bribery. And you might be thinking like, well, what's so bad about telling the government and the press about corruption going on in a private business? The the problem, uh, such as it is, um, is that this lawyer was representing this company at this time. So this becomes sort of a attorney-client imbroglio, which has been going on for um, like a decade over in over in the UK. I've learned a thing or two about professional responsibility in my days in law school, and this is wild. <laughs> um, tell us more about this leak. I mean, that sounds crazy to me. So I should say there is a, um, we're diving into a near, it's, it's, it's like a 386 page decision from this oh, London God. judge. Wow. And, you know, white collar ethics stuff. We don't really talk about that a lot. We certainly don't talk about it a lot when it is falls under the UK jurisdiction. But I thought this was like a really pretty interesting story by Christopher Crosby in our London Bureau. 
And if you're, we're going to give you an overview here. If you're interested in it, definitely read his, he has like a, a news story and several features on this. But I just wanted to shine a light on this here a little bit. So at the center of the case is an attorney named Neil Garrard. And he was the former head of white collar investigations for Deckert LLP, um, which is a sort of a huge big law firm. It's a multinational firm. And he was hired to do some investigative work for the uh, Kazakhstan mining company called Eurasian Natural Resources Corp. We'll call them ENRC. Now, he was hired to do sort of internal investigative work here. And I want to stress that because the court found this week that as he was parsing through the company's missteps flagged by, you know, a whistleblower, he was also at that time leaking them to the press and to England's investigators, all while trying to leverage the leaks that he himself was making to oh, kind no. of just... To, to kind of just um, inflate the bill to tell the company, hey, you know, the government has has some goods here and you should we should probably Ooh. spend some more time on this stuff. <laughs> That's wow. That's my advice as your lawyer. Not that I have anything to do with that, according to Ooh. this. I mean, it's yeah. one thing to tell this story as like uh, it's a whistleblower doing the right thing somehow and make that argument. But that clearly seems to not be the case here. Yeah, so Gerard was, he was hired to audit the company's internal structure, ENRC, um, after a whistleblower came forward saying that there, you know, that there had been bribery and corruption in various company subsidiaries. It's like very complicated and protracted, and maybe we'll get to it later. But for the purposes of this, the point that you, the, the thing you have to know is that Gerard was brought in to do an internal investigation. And then in the course of him doing this, um, according to the ruling this week, he began strategically informing the English government of sensitive company information in order to, what the, what the court found, scaremonger the risk of a government raid. So kind of like what I was just hinting at before, the idea is, He's going to the government, giving them strategic information, then going back to the company and saying, look, they're going to knock down your door at any point here. So <laughs> let's dive a little deeper. All told, this um, took his contract from an initial $490,000 estimate for just investigating internal corruption into a three-year, $16 million investigation across wow, multiple wow. comments. That's lucrative yeah. as hell. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's good work <laughs> if you can get it. Um, <laughs> so long as some English court doesn't um, pull you into check on that. And you keep your law license. Well, I mean, that's right, yeah. the big thing here, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're kind of like looking at this from an attorney-client obligation thing where, you know, it's one thing if, you know, if, if you're uncovering a company's secrets and they're and they've done something like completely egregious beyond your in, beyond what you ever envisioned. You can disclose them to the government, 
and you know maybe you wash your hands of it. But it's quite a different thing to bring them back and say, hey, look, they are going to go after you here unless we do something else. Um, here is a key passage from this ruling that I think quite articulates what Gerard was doing here. Quote, he was taking opportunities to damage his client in the eyes of the serious fraud office. That's the London regulator here. Again, this was not because he wanted to foment a criminal investigation, but because he now saw his interest lying much more with impressing the SFO than protecting his client. So you see the court saying, you're actually just trying to sort of parlay bad things about your client to the government, but still pretend to be neutral to your client. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we talked about this in our production meeting. Love the name Serious Fraud Office. It's just, it tells honest. you exactly what it looks it's for. It's straightforward. One of my very favorite British sort of administrative affectations, <laughs> yes. Yeah, but so what? what's the fallout here for that? Are they facing any consequences for working with this attorney? Yeah, so they, they were on the hook here um, because it is sort of a two-way transaction, you can understand. The idea that the lawyer is giving information and the government is then weaponizing it. But the opinion basically spared the, the, the SFO from any uh, serious wrongdoing, basically saying that if the agency gets information about wrongdoing, it's allowed to use it. That's the whole point of its public function. But all of that also means that uh, the company, ENRC, is uh, even beyond this this drama with the Deckard attorney, is still actually going to face a lot of scrutiny for the initial corruption investigation. This is kind of a little, this is a little bit hard to track, right? Because we're talking about attorney malfeasance, but there is still the underlying, like, did you bribe people to, like, coerce business for your mining operations? And at least... Um, with regard to Christopher's coverage, which again, I recommend everybody read. The Gerard episode here that we're talking about, while certainly very staggering in terms of the way he was double dealing, is going to be a little bit of a sideshow in terms of like how they pursue the company for actual corruption. Last week, the victims of a catastrophic building collapse in Surfside, Florida, settled their claims against a slew of defendants. The settlements amounted to nearly $1 billion and resolved what was otherwise poised to be complex and emotionally charged litigation. Here to explain the deal is one of our Florida reporters, Carolina Bellato. Welcome to the show, Carolina. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, this is a sad one to talk about, but uh, you know, a case I think a lot of people were watching closely. Can you start us at the beginning? Just remind everyone what happened in Surfside and how we actually got into court about it. Yeah, it's it's actually been it's really been been a difficult case at times to cover. Um, there have been a lot of emotional hearings um, from you know hearing from the victims and the survivors and stuff. Um, yeah, what, so June twenty fourth, twenty twenty one, at about a little before one thirty in the morning, 
um, this building in Surfside, which is the town just north of Miami Beach, um, just literally just collapsed. I mean, if you see, I'm sure, I don't know if everyone's seen the security camera footage of the building falling, but it just pancaked. And um, you think, you know, people were, were sleeping in their beds um, and, and just woken up by a loud crash and then everything ended. Um, so, yeah, so that's what happened. Um, and then the lawsuit started. Obviously, we all know that that's going to happen. And they were all consolidated. They were all filed in uh, Miami-Dade Circuit Court. And uh, the first one, I think, came in that very first afternoon. And they were consolidated before Judge Michael Hansman in the Complex Business uh, Litigation Division. And this is certainly a, I mean, this is a complex case. Yeah. So the people filing these suits, it was the families of people who actually died in the collapse and then also residents who maybe weren't home but lost their condos in this building, right? It was a bit of everything. Um, I mean, everyone filed. Uh, there were the fir- I think the first one was filed by a woman who got out, who was in the part of who lived in the part right. of the building that that stayed standing. Um, so she lost her home, you know, but she got out. Uh, there were certainly family members of the deceased that filed lawsuits, um, and they were all initially filed against the condo association. And that was one of the interesting, really interesting things about this case, because normally when you have a mass tort like this, I think the the biggest comparator I've heard is like a plane crash. You have 200 people, you know, plane goes down, 200 people die. And who's at fault? Well, you've got the airline, the pilots, the, you know, you're suing the, I don't know, the people who who maintained the the airplane, whatever. But the people who died were not at fault. But in this case, because it's, I mean, the condo association, who makes up the condo association? It's all of the unit owners, some of whom perished. So it's this very like circular thing where everyone, and it could have, I think, had it dragged on, it could have gotten really, really ugly, you know? And I think that that's one of the things that the judge really wanted to avoid was having brutal you know, neighbor versus neighbor fights. And there was, a li- there certainly was some of that. Um, and we'll get into that, but, but um, it didn't get as ugly as it could have. And I think that was partly because of the rapid pace set by the judge and, and the tone he set for the litigation. Wow. Can you walk us through um, what, uh, what's going on with the settlement? Like what, it's a, it's a pretty big amount here. Yeah. It was crazy. So it was so they've been having regular status conferences every about approximately every two weeks in this case. And so this was, you know, set up as a regular status conference where we've been just they, you know, the attorneys come in, they discuss like what's going on, how things are moving on. And the receiver for the condo association, the court appointed receiver, came in and he said, This is the biggest day in the litigation. And then he goes and he spends like 10 minutes thanking all of the attorneys and like, you know, they're all patting themselves on the back. And I'm thinking, what is going on? <laughs> this is a big buildup. And then he announced $997 million. And I just almost fell out of my chair. And I unfortunately I was not in the courtroom. They, they've been um doing hybrid hearings. It's actually worked really well. I mean credit to the the court staff that has done this. Um, because they have all been streamed on Zoom. So the victims and their families have been able to watch. And um, sometimes people like me who, you know, had a conflict and couldn't quite be there in person that day. It's an astounding result, honestly, less than a year afterwards. And it was basically, 
this also wasn't one big settlement. It goes, this was like 20 something. I don't know how many, but, but at least two dozen settlements, individual settlements, individually negotiated with each individual defendant. Um, and there was one mediator who was basically handling all of them. Um, from what I understand, the attorney said he did not sleep. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely like spiraling and very complex. Can you tell us a little bit more about which things are part of this big, uh, almost a billion dollars? And if there's anything that's left out that's still ongoing? So it's claims against um, basically anyone and everyone. The the defendants were um, the Frank Morabito Consultants, which was the uh, structural engineer that was working with the, com- with the building on its 40-year recertification process. Uh, so they had they had done like a, an examination of the building and issued a, a report in 2018. The city of Surfside settled all of the entities associated with 87 Park, which is the building right next door um, that the Champlain Towers folks said caused the, there was, when they were drilling, digging down for the, the structure of 87 Park, um, there was serious shaking of Champlain right. Towers. And so they said this destabilized our, our building. All of those parties settled and that involved like the developers, the architects, the, um, I mean, everybody. There were some companies that I think had done some like concrete restoration at some point on um, at Champlain Towers. They settled like it, it was pretty comprehensive. It sounds like it, I mean, it can comprehensive. There was only one as, as of la- that that hearing. Um, there was one entity left Geosonics, which I believe provided the like monitoring of the the drilling and the vibrations for 87 uh-huh. Park. And they were still in, in settlement negotiations, but they all, everybody seemed confident that that was going to happen soon. So basically it's going to get over a billion. Plus there's another $50 million that the receiver has from the uh, association's insurance policies. And the sale of the property is happening later this month. And there's a, the stocking horse bid is at, is at $120 million. So expect at least another $120 million to add to all of this. So we're looking at probably about 1.2 billion. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, I know you said a few minutes ago that you were surprised when you heard yeah. this announced at that settlement conference. How did the judge react? So, I, I mean, I couldn't quite see him on the thing, but uh, yeah. I was told he there was he muttered something that I am not at liberty to disclose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he he basically was like, I'm at a loss for words. Like, I don't know what to say. I mean, he I think everyone in the courtroom was just shocked. He had no advance warning. There was not, there had been nothing filed. I mean, from what I was told, the plaintiff's attorneys told me that they were negotiating, I think up until like 15 minutes before the, um, the hearing. So oh my gosh. Was, yeah. Very no advance warning. It really, it was, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. How unusual is it for this to happen as fast as it did? And, and I mean, yeah, it's this is just almost incomprehensible with that dollar amount and then it being And that reached. many parties involved, yeah. right? Yeah, it's like complicated yeah. and and just in case the listeners missed it as we've been talking, this is ahead of the one year anniversary of this horrific event. So it is very quick by legal standards. So an expert I talked to who's ex- he's a, a law professor um and an expert on mass torts said it's not unheard of, but it's very unusual. Um, there have been some, some cases that were, usually it's where there's like clear fault or something, um, that 
have been resolved within a year and a half or so, a year and a half or two years of, of the, the incident. In this case, I mean, I, I spoke to the attorney for Surfside and, and he basically, he explained it as, you know, a lot of the insurers, I think, just, just wanted out. They did not want, and, and a lot of these people don't want their clients to be one of the few that goes to the jury and have a jury. You don't want a jury like pointing the finger at your client saying, yeah, you, you were at fault here. Um, that's especially when this is, I mean, this is, this was made international news. Right. Um, right. I mean, I had, I had cousins in Spain calling me, asking me, cause I, I don't live very far from there. I'm, I'm actually, I live in Miami beach. So I'm, you know, not that far. Um, I knew people who had an apartment there. And so, yeah, my we had cousins in Spain calling and asking if we were okay. Sure. And, uh, so this was, this was international news. It was huge. It's, buildings just don't collapse like this in the United States. Yeah, I can see why companies would want to quickly, as quickly as possible, right. settle out of this. And yeah. um, from some of your reporting, I also gathered that the judge was very invested in doing this in as fast a po- way as possible. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? In the complex business litigation division, there are two judges. So when they filed those first suits, there was 50-50 chance that they would get this judge, Judge, Han- judge Michael Hansman. And I think every attorney that I've spoken with who's worked on the case says they really lucked out here because not that the other judge is bad, but Judge Hansman has, he spent, you know, a couple decades in private practice handling these kinds of cases. He represented victims of like one of the largest Ponzi schemes in South Florida. He is very, very familiar with large, very complex civil litigation. So uh, this is this was in his wheelhouse, and he knew exactly what needed to be done to get this resolved quickly. And that's been his goal from day one. He basically said, "I um, th- I want to get cash as much cash as possible into the hands of the survivors and the the and the families of the victims, um, so that these people can get on with their lives." Yeah, I, I would imagine this is going to bring a lot of relief to that group of survivors and families of those victims. Right. Um, how quickly are they going to get some of this money? What do we see as next steps in the next part? Of, you know, we're post-deal, but there's still a lot of uh, administrative stuff to do now. Right. So, um, first of all, there was a separate settlement um, that was done before this. Uh, there's $83 million, and, and it's not... It's going to all come out of the same large pot, but $83 million will go to all of the unit owners, whether they survived or not. And the idea was for the survivors who who lost just property to be able to exit the litigation. And they, a lot of them are in temporary housing. They're, you know, crashing with friends still or in short-term leases or whatever, and they need the cash to move on. So the judge really wanted to clear those out first. And those, uh, as soon as the sale goes through, I believe that the bulk of their money will come in. Um, so the sale, the auction, as I said, the auction's happening later this month. Then um, they are already starting the claims process. Yesterday, there was a hearing on where, where the attorneys dis- discussed with the judge what the claims process is, is going to look like. Judge Hansman wants to burden the victims as little as possible. And he wants this to make, uh, obviously, they will have to divulge some information and they're you know, there's going to be a process involved, but he doesn't want to burden them too much. Uh, For example, I think the original claims form that was submitted to the court included um, 
past medical history because, you know, a claims administrator is going to be figuring out how much, I mean, this is, it's awful that we have to put it this way, but this is the way the courts deal with it. How much was each life worth, right? And, and the life of a 90 year old who perished is not going to be as much worth as much money as like a 10 year old, right? Because, right. because obviously life expectancy, but, um, the judge basically said, I want all of the medical information out. Like, I, I don't care about people's medical history. We're not going to go into their, you know, history of, of high cholesterol or something to determine that they might have lived a few fewer years or whatever. Okay. Um, wow. So, so yeah, we're going to start that process. Um, I believe, I believe that the judge wants that done by the end of August, and he hopes to have checks out by September. Yeah, it's tremendously quick, Carolina. It's it's really, um, you know, I think people may study this case in the future to see how sort of a victim first approach to a big mass tort settlement can work. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen. (laughs) Uh, I really appreciate you coming on to break it down for us because um, this is some very, you know, big figures here and such a tragic event that led to this. So it's really interesting to understand how this is all getting settled for those victims. Thanks for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I know you have a story for us today. Yeah, so we are going to uh, wrap up the show with a dive into the we're talking about a First Amendment case, uh, and specifically the First Amendment's collision with the craft brewery scene. A North Carolina judge has ruled that a brewery does indeed have the right to put the suggestion of a man's extremely small penis on its beer label. Well, thank God. Well, right here, I'm <laughs> going to tell our listeners, on. this is definitely a PG-13 segment, obviously. All right, well, and I think those uh, North Carolina regulators thought it was an R-rated label. Yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> there is a little bit of uh, puritanical pearl clutching going on here. Um, <laughs> Could we, before you even get into the particulars here, uh, yeah, <laughs> what exactly is on this label? Because that seems nuts. Okay. All right. Yeah. Please describe this for us. Um, well, don't but, describe it. But don't too describe much, it too much. Yeah. Just enough so we know what's <laughs> oh, happening. Oh, okay. Are we being overly censorious on this podcast as well? I mean, <laughs> no, guys, no, we're, we're not being overly. We have to talk about this like in plain terms. The right amount. <laughs> okay. So the beer label in question features a man with a comically small penis, potentially, um, and that's what we're talking about. <laughs> so it, this is an illustration on a label that is circulated by the Maryland-based Flying Dog Brewery, which got some pushback. That They are based in Maryland, but the, the, the suit played out in North Carolina, where um, the North Carolina Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission raised a stink about the label on the brewery's freezing season winter ale, which shows a male figure with a very extremely small protrusion at its crotch. Because uh, it's, yeah, Could it's be cold. a penis. I got it, Because beer. it's cold. 
the freezing season. Shrinkage. <sighs> George Costanza has told us about this. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go out, <laughs> go on not at all a limb and say, this is why microbreweries can really be stupid. Come on. <laughs> okay. Well, Lime I mean, Dog has great labels, though, in general. That's, mm. well, see, I mean, well, they're just, I think they do. That's a matter well, of taste. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the legality here. Right. Should um, they be allowed to make a tasteless joke on their label? Basically? Correct. Yeah. Um, although I do want to circle back to the, um, the matter of taste. But the point <laughs> sure. is that the North Carolina, like I said, the North Carolina Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission told the brewery that the label is in bad taste and it was going to block all sales in the state. The brewery sues and they won in federal court this week as Judge Terrence Boyle wrote that um, this has actually been pretty well litigated in his court, um, that prior rulings about labels on consumer goods, quote, should have placed any reasonable state liquor commissioner on notice that banning a beer label based on its content would violate the First Amendment. So it's, I mean, in layman's terms, that's basically saying, you can't just block it because it violates your sensibility or, or you know, good taste or whatever. But yeah, uh, this is probably as good a time as any to talk about the flying dog because I was actually trying to think about it in neutral terms and I was actually pretty proud of myself because I was like, how would I describe this? And it's kind of like... I mean, if you've been to any well-stocked bodega or liquor store or whatever, you've seen Flying Dog products. I was going to say it's sort of like an aggressive Gonzo-style... Gonzo-style is a good way to describe this label. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though, is that I came up with that independently. And then at the production meeting yesterday, producer Kelly told me that uh, the British illustrator Ralph Steadman does a lot of these illustrations for Flying Dog, including this one with the micropenis thing. And that's the artist that does stuff with Hunter S. Thompson, And right? he was the Hunter S. Thompson Gonzo oh, wow. illustrator. So I didn't even... Yeah. Not to... This is all a long way to commend my own sensibility before I knew <laughs> that Ralph Steadman did this. Anyway, so that's where well we're done. at. Yes. Well done. Well, you know, hey, I'm glad we got that into this segment because... You know, we're joking about what could be considered an explicit label, but obviously it's done by a respected artist. So is it just art? And that's a classic First Amendment type trap there. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about what the label looked like. Like now that listeners may have an idea of what the artwork is like. I mean, when I looked at this, I just saw an outline of a man, honestly, on the label. So was that all part of this case? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you noticed. I mean, in the, f- I was trying to kind of couch whether or not, like, literally a penis was depicted. I've, I'm trying to say, like, there was a suggestion of a penis, a hint of a curvature, or whatever. <laughs> and um, that is because a big part of the suit centers around the factual question of whether or not there is literally a penis on the label. Which gets right. to the question of whether or not explicit it or is not. sexually yeah. explicit. And the filings in the case are pretty instructive here because Flying Dog 
sort of obfuscates the question. It just kind of zooms in on the crotch of the figure and it just says, it just has the caption, quote, sexually explicit definition of a penis, uh, question mark. So uh, the label- Imagine uh, preparing that filing. Well, yeah, and, and they go on. Uh, the company says the label shows, quote, a small protrusion that is where one would expect to find a penis on most male humans. Oh my! Can God. you imagine a more lawyerly <laughs> description of <sighs> the of anatomy? I mean, I suppose where that one is where would, I would expect, expect to find. Yeah, yeah, it is expected. The company said it is otherwise not at all identifiable as one. There are no constituent parts of a penis, no testicles. And it is not engorged. It is a small nub that merely suggests a penis. It is certainly not sexually explicit. They're practically calling it a fig leaf. They're like, don't yeah. worry about it. I, you know, it's a suggestion. That's that's why I use that and what I said. Um, to counter the, the uh, alcohol commission in North Carolina wrote what, in my opinion, is the real highlight of all the filings here, wrote that the image, quote, May not have all the bells and whistles, but it's a penis. <laughs> and I would love... Bells I mean, and whistles. Wow. They're kind of talking... I mean, I assume they're talking about testicles. Because um, that's <laughs> what Flying Dog wrote about. Look... I don't I know what a whistle can... would be, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is... These are some of the funniest uh, things that lawyers have had to write um, for us to talk yeah. about here. But I think it's it's pretty interesting here that all of this like essentially nonsense on some level really is kind of important about like what can commissions in states prevent and when does that butt up against your first amendment rights? I mean, that's actually a big and weighty issue. Yeah. And flying dog has actually run into this stuff before they, they won a case. God, it might've been, it was like six or seven years ago at this point, they have a, a very popular IPA, I think that's called uh, Raging Bitch. And it's like a very yeah. sort of like expressive, it's a dog that like looks like it's either in heat or like rabbit or whatever. And that was uh, sued by some commission, I can't remember now, to block it. And they prevailed on sort of similar grounds right. as they prevailed on here. So they have swum, you know, they, they've been swimming in this pool before. But for now, what we can say is that this label with the micro penis, perhaps, uh, um, perhaps, can stand. And we await further developments in the area of micro penis beer labeling case law, um, which I'm sure are awaiting in the pike. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't wait to see what Flying Dog does next because they love to push the envelope and I yeah. uh, can't even imagine where Offbeat will go from here. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Carolina Bellato, and our contributing reporters, Max Yeager and Christopher Crosby. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a five-star and written review wherever you're listening. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.